Hey everybody, welcome back to Reading This Is Nick. I'm sorry we're a little bit late this time. Issues with audio and issues with me being lazy and also potential snowder. Uh, but I'm back to Paternity League and we're putting out new episodes all the time. In between we'll probably do a little bit of extra audio here then. But in the meantime, we appreciate you guys supporting us and we appreciate you listening in. As you can hear in the dim and light background, we are in the middle of a podcast for the right now, which is totally awesome. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, please listen, support, and subscribe, review, share, etc. Zoom in time. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to Required Reading. Uh, this week, we are talk- tackling Octavia Butler's Kindred. The book I received from Mike for our book exchange. Good joy. Yeah, I'm excited. It was great. Uh, <laughs> I'm good. I'm glad you complimented yourself. Check that on the list. Yeah, no, that was good. Um, I, I don't know if we sound uh, different. It's been months since we've recorded. True. Yes, Nick is back in person after uh, paternity, family leave. So yeah. welcome back. Good to have you back. It's good to be back. Um, I, I had plenty to read over the break. Uh, for those of you who've had an infant at home, you know that there's a lot of downtime where you're just holding the baby. So I'm afraid. I mean, I was never awake enough to to read when our kids were young. You're always so exhausted. So yeah. Kudos to you. Well, we'll see how much I actually remember that. Huh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the pages were turning, but yeah. Was, yeah. Let's was see. Anything retained? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, this is Kindred. Uh, it's. A, I want to say it's a sleeper hit because apparently people know about it, but Octavia Butler's having a moment. Um, and so when Mike gave me this book, it was it's one of those things like you ever like hear a song or watch a movie and you think this is great. And then you realize everyone has seen it before you. Yeah. Uh, I think it was the AV club had a list of the books that didn't come out this year that were reading and five of them had talked about Octavia Butler. Oh, seriously? Yeah. And like, uh, and, uh, I forget, I was listening to fresh air and just another interviewee name checked Octavia Butler. And I'm just like, okay, so I'm really late to the party. Uh, book came out in 79 and uh, apparently there's like a million in print or something like that, but a lot of that has sold in the last few years because she's kind of come back around. Uh, African-American sci-fi fantasy kind of story based in historical uh, historical fiction. Yeah, she's a pioneer in that genre, which I'm not super well read in that genre, but um, as an African-American woman writing sci- sci-fi, that's... Yeah. Relatively unusual, especially in the 70s. Um, hopefully it's a little more inclusive now. I honestly don't know. but Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and frankly, like, sci-fi fantasy seems to be one of those genres in general that seems kind of fringe, and whenever someone breaks through, it's, it's a big deal. Like, I'm thinking someone like Michael Crichton with Jurassic Park, which is essentially sci-fi. Sure. Uh, but people don't think of it that way. Or, you know, I mean, and this is the late 70s, which to me says... And I know this is me projecting, so who knows uh, if anyone has an interview with Octavia Butler talking about this, but it screams to me someone who grew up with Star Trek in the 70s, saw someone like Uhura there, you know, Nichelle Nichols, and was inspired by her. And that's a story that we get that I like to tell in class, that, like, she wanted to quit, Martin Luther King asked her to keep going, and, like, so there is that. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Because, you know, there weren't a lot of black people in science fiction then, so to have this thing going makes sense. Right. And as, as we're talking about this, so I gave it to you, and I'm glad you liked it, And but I was trying to remember where I first learned of this, and I'm not sure where I heard of it. I, I, I've mentioned before that I taught an elective on slavery, American slavery, at, at one point, but it was after that that I discovered Butler and, and read this, and it blew me away. Was, and then, like you're saying, Nick, like, how did I not know about this? And then suddenly your eyes are open, like, this is... 
widely known or you're turned on to that um, sort of club or you know yeah. awareness that this has been out there and influential. So uh, yeah, I'm glad you liked it, but I, I can't point to my origin story with this. Well, and, it, and again, it's interesting too because uh, I mean we'll we'll get to I mean I'll, I'll slink very quickly, very briefly, and we'll get into it. But the main character is a woman uh, named Dana, and she essentially I keep thinking Slaughterhouse Five, but she comes unstuck in time, um, and whenever she does. She, the world gets kind of hazy, and she ends up back in the 18-teens, we find out. Um, and there's a red-headed first boy, and then young child, and then young man, and then adult, named Roscoe, who went... Rufus. Rufus, excuse yeah. me. Just name-checking students now. Rufus. Uh, who, whenever he's in trouble, like a life-or-death situation, she shows up and chooses to save him. Right. Um, but it's just, it's so interesting that, like, this is kind of the height of sci-fi of the modern era, like it's two years after Star Wars. Um, it's, you know, the, the Star Trek movie comes out the same year. Like, this, this is a hotbed of sci-fi activity, and yet I had never heard of this. Right. Um, and it's, and again, you're the English teacher. Sci-fi is not something that's generally taught that much in schools either. Certainly not until the last 10 or 15 years. It sort of gained its um, relevance or earned its credit. I mean, and then that's that's a slight to the genre. Yeah. Um, it, it deserves. There's certainly good literary sci-fi that deserves study and deserves to be in the canon or in, in academia. Mm -hmm. um, but that's been slow to come around. And, and similar to, like, graphic novels, I would say, right? So mm -hmm. it's something, oh, that was sort of for kids or that was a fringe thing, but now people are, are seeing the scholarly academic literary merit. It's just another... Uh, genre, and that's one of the. It's a hugely popular course here that Mr. Beebe teaches, because uh, there's so many ways you can go. You can go with philosophical, you can go with futurism, environmentalism, all those things that mm -hmm. that uh, sci-fi fixtures or fiction writers use to create their world world building. Yeah, yeah and, and it's just it's fascinating for me too because you know what does sci-fi mean? And a lot of times, like if we're talking a Star Trek, it's utopianism. Right, like there's this perfect society, and we believe we can make the the galaxy better. You know, Star Trek, Star Wars, on their hand, is very dystopian. We are the losers, and we're just trying to hold on against this evil. Right, yeah, that's the other side of it. It's either utopian or, or cautionary tale, like yeah, you know, warning us what could happen. Well, I mean, the, to wit, I mean, in some ways, this is almost a Star Trek episode where they keep coming across Nazis for no reason in, in a, you know, the not too distant future. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Octavia Butler is just this kind of, and it's such a readable book. That's the other thing about it. Totally. We, we don't usually talk about that part of it, but like, uh, I, I already name checked Slaughterhouse Five. That's an incredibly complicated book that jumps back and forth and all over the place, and the guy's clearly suffering. She is dealing with this very practically, and it's, it's interesting, because uh, we'll get to it, but her husband doesn't quite understand what's going on at first and wants to believe her, but it's weird. It's really weird. Yeah, and, and what she's doing, too, is also, I would think, groundbreaking in that uh, her husband is a white guy in 76, and then and so there's all these uh, elements of race um, and, and sensitivities to that. And then when she travels back, and thus the title, she figures out that Rufus is a patriarch of her family. And so when she's called back to save him, she's literally saving herself in the future. Mm -hmm. And so this, this mixed race or this mixed heritage, mixed history we all have is very concrete to her. 
literally to her survival um, and, and Butler. So there's, I, I'm, as we're talking about this, and you and I were talking before we, you know, roll tape here, so to speak, um, I'm really excited and hopefully want to put this on the book list because there's yeah. so many things you could you could do with this and, and touch on history and slavery and race and feminism and, you know, there's a lot wrapped up in this book in a very readable way, like you're saying that Slaughterhouse-Five sometimes can be confusing to the point where students will put it down because it's jumping around so much. But mm. this, I think, is very accessible right away. Well, and it does the thing where it's just like, She's traveling through time. There's, there's no like, there's not like a process. There's not a machine. There's not, there's not some scientist who's like, well, here's what's happening. No, mm-hmm. she kind of figures it out because she's a practical woman, um, and that's it. Done. Story. <laughs> like, it's not the point that she, how she does it, is that she does. Right. And and that's maybe why a lot of people get bogged down in sci-fi. Like, there's a lot of explanation. There's no explanation here. Yeah, it's it true. Does it, right? The exposition is very tight, and you just get to the action, and you're always, and that that creates an inherent suspense. So once you figure out that she gets transported back, like when is it going to happen again? Because mm-hmm. you sort of know it's coming, and she knows it's coming at various points, and and that, that I think that's what makes it readable. You're turning the page to find out what happens next, whether she's in '76, and you're wondering when she's going to get zapped back to 1815 or 18 teens, like you mm-hmm. said or whether she's in the plantation life and you're wondering whether she'll get, you know, when can she escape and get home, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should stop just for a second because it sounds like the announcements is it's never explained. Or why. Yeah. Like the, 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 the big capital Y. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, okay. So uh, what we should do now, kind of getting into it, is talk about the actual plot of the book. Okay. Um, so there's a, the prologue is weird. Uh, it's very X-Files-esque. It's got that great first line. Let me pull it up here. I'm, no. I'm looking at an um, online version here. As I scroll. I lost an arm. Right, yeah. I lost an arm on my last last trip home. My left arm. And I lost about a year of my life and much more of the comfort and security I had not valued until it was gone. When the police released Kevin, he came to the hospital and stayed with me so that I would know I hadn't lost him too. But before he could come to me, I had to convince the police that he did not belong in jail. That took time. The police were shadows who appeared intermittently at my bedside to ask me questions. I had to struggle to understand. This is great. Yeah, it's a great... You start in the middle of the action right there. Um, yeah. An arm is missing. Kevin is um, presumed to be abusive, perhaps. We, we don't even know who Kevin is. The police are mm-hmm. looming. Right, yeah, so... Um, it's it's almost Sunset Boulevard, but there's a corpse in the pool. Like this sort is how of. I died. Like. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that's the intrigue. Yeah. She's giving away the ending at the beginning, but you and she circles back in flashbacks upon flashbacks to tell how this arm was lost. Right. right. And I mean, and to it, we we said she's having a moment now already. We said she's coming back around. Surprisingly. It's only recently that this has gone into development as a show, right? It's going to be a, like a miniseries. Right. I, I think they've started filming now or something, casting. It's coming up. It's yeah. And well-deserved, because as you read this, it's so cinemagraphic, and you think, wow, oh, this would make a great TV show or series. Well, and to wit, this is a cold open, right? Like, she wakes up in a hospital bed missing an arm, and she's talking about stuff. Right. And people are like, so what happened? And you're just like, 
Credits, right? Like that, that's, that's what it is. The frame, thing. frame narrative begins here, yes. Right. I mean, it's like then the X Files theme plays, and, and we're there. Mulder yeah. and, and Mulder and Scully are there, and Scully's checking out the arm. Like that, that's what this is. We've done it. Um, it's fantastic. Um, but the action really gets picked up in a chapter called uh, the River. Um, so essentially, the story is Dana and Kevin are moving into a new place. And they're unpacking books. In L.A. in 76, right? In 76. They're, they're a new couple, and she's 26, I think. Yeah, and he's a scotch shoulder. Yeah. Um, and they're moving into their first place together. Um, they've gotten married uh, fairly recently, um, and it starts with a very, well, not boring, but it's very suburban. It's very middle class, very uninteresting. Well, we're unpacking our books together. Right. Um, and other than the fact that there's a black woman on the cover, you don't really get the racial element of it yet. Correct. Right. Right. Um, while in the middle of unpacking books, uh, Dana gets lightheaded. The room gets kind of fuzzy. It starts moving in and out. She regains herself on the side of a river, um, and she sees a boy drowning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, she wades out into the river, um, brings the boy back and does CPR on him. And people are, someone's yelling at her, beating her as she's doing the CPR. It's a confusing, chaotic scene, but she's determined to save this kid. Um, and he comes around, and she does save him, and um, that's where things get confusing for her. Right. Um, as the, the, the mother figure, we, we assume the mother figure, the older woman, is beating her, screaming. She throws her off to give her the, the kid's CPR, and... Right as the scene starts to like come undone, like she saves the boy's life, there's a rifle pointed at her head, and she disappears and ends up back in her apartment, soaking wet, soaking wet, covered in mud from the river. Uh, and her husband, uh, Kevin, is looking around because she essentially teleports from one side of the room to the other, is covered in mud, and though maybe half an hour has disappeared for her, seconds have ha disappeared for him. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so now we have a time travel story, and, but we're still confused as readers of exactly what happened, where she went, and why, <clears throat> um, as, as Dana and Kevin are confused as well. So. Right, and, and then she is going to gain more and more understanding. He, at first, is obviously incredibly skeptical. Uh, because is it a hallucination? Is it not? Why am I covered in mud if it's a hallucination? Not that he has any answers or wants to not believe her, but it's one of these things. The truth is really scary if this is what's going on, so what are we supposed to do about it? Maybe all you saw was a hallucination. That would make it much easier. Right. Um, but what's going to happen is events on one end are going to speed up, and the other end are going to slow down. It's It's... That that's the parallelism we have to deal with. It starts in June seventeen or er, nineteen seventy six, and is going to get go to July fourth effectively. Mm -hmm. Though they don't give us the date, it's going to go over the course of about a month ish, kind of. <laughs> it's weird, uh, but it's also going to go. Uh, what we'll find out is across the boys' almost entire life. Yeah, and I think, uh, and we were talking before about why this might be a very teachable book or so many things to talk about because you're younger than I am, but I remember <clears throat> the Bicentennial and, and Ra Ra America and all that. So I can imagine as Butler's writing this, she's 
saying that there's a part of our past we need to reckon with, and we're still dealing with it today. We're mm-hmm. finally, you know, acknowledging the sins of our past as a nation and slavery. Um, so that that setting is obviously very deliberate in in that patriotic time period, um, yeah. as she's reckoning with her own uh, past and relationship to slavery. And I guess uh, check out our previous episodes on people like Ibrahim Kindi um, and some other books on race we've already talked about, just because it is becoming a debate. You know, um, we mentioned it in when we were reading the life of Frederick Douglass, but like, a, what does a, the Fourth of July need to, to a Negro, right? right. Like, um, so it's just, it's, it, she's of course playing with this even without directly addressing it, right? Right. Um, because it's weird to say, like, I'm good, I mean, Today, it'd be like, I'm writing a novel based in 2018. Well, why would you say it three years ago? Well, for her, it's very specific. It's it's bicentennial. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it has added weight. As though she was eating a hot dog on the 4th of July, and it came to her and said, well, you know, 150 years ago, this would have meant something very different to me. Right. And as far as, um, I was just reading some criticism about the, the novel, but the sort of mechanism for the time travel, it's in a lot of sci-fi, you get, you know, like, I found a wormhole or something yeah, like yeah. this. Um, it's just assumed, it's just baked in, and the critic was comparing it to Kafka's Metamorphosis, just like, Gregor turns into a beetle. You don't yeah. necessarily know why or how, but that's just the assumed fact of the narrative. You just sort of suspend your disbelief and go with it. So I thought it was an interesting comparison because in this, yeah, she never really understands the why, mm-hmm. like what is making the time travel happen. But she comes to learn that um, there's a calling that um, we can we can talk to it as we go, yeah. go forward the plot. Well, and I mean, uh, to wit, like that would make this more fantasy <clears throat> than science fiction because there's there's no science element to it. And in fact, generally in the sci-fi element, when there's science at play, a lot of time the time machine, at the end of the time machine, is destroyed, right? For reasons. Like, this is too much power for one man to have. No, she puts a stop to it. Yeah. In a very specific way, which we'll get to. Um, and uh, New Year, New Season, there's a good, great twist in this. So what we will do is we'll tell you right when we're going to try to spoil it. Uh, so if you want to skip ahead and not listen to the spoiler, we'll okay. let you know. Because unlike some other books where everyone knows the ending, I didn't know where this was going. I guessed. Um, but yeah, so read this. Definitely read this. Yeah, yeah, definitely read this. Um, okay. One. So uh, she's shaken. <laughs> she's muddy. She decides to take a shower. Uh, I believe they order out to dinner. Yeah. And right as the food starts to come, she starts to go back out of time. She like literally sits out at the dinner table and like falls through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wakes up, and another redheaded stepchild type is lighting fire to the drinks. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so yeah, and so again, it, it's uh, it seems to be she's zapped back to a life or death moment um, in the time period that's not her own, and uh, she helps to put out the fire, and with this little redheaded child who's who's older at this point. Yeah. Um, and she eventually makes a connection. Oh, this is the same kid um, that I was just with a few, you know, an hour ago or whatever in her right. time. Um, but obviously in Rufus's world, the, the time is elongated. It's been a couple of years maybe. Um, and so she puts out the fire and then starts to puzzle out, where am I? And when what's am going? I? When am I? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that stupid question that all time travelers have to ask, when am <laughs> I? 
But it's interesting that Butler's already gone sort of elemental, if you will. So she's got the water right there. Here's fire, and mm-hmm. and um, and there's light um, coming up later, but um, with with night and dark and day. Um, so it's just a very simplistic. I don't want to say simplistic. Very elemental writing, like her style, as you read in the excerpt. Is very clear and very crisp and Hemingway-like. It's not overly done. It's tight that way. Yeah. In the, in the titles of the chapters, the river, the fire, the fall, the fight, the storm. Um, um, just very clear. You know, adjective noun, adjective noun, adjective noun. Boom. Yeah. I mean, and again, something that's interesting to me is in this time period where we're dealing with this idea of like. Should we teach Mark Twain because of the language he uses? Should we teach, you know, like even stuff from the 70s? Like, can we show chunks of, you know, uh, hell, 80s Spike Lee movies because of the language they use? She addresses it in this section. Don't call me that word. I'm a black woman. Right. Um, And he goes, well, why? That's what we call all black people, right? And he's not wrong, right? And and like, and part of this becomes, she, she doesn't quite get it yet. Other than the fact that at this point there's a woman named Alice that she believes she's related to, right? That comes up in this section. But she goes, well, if I can do one thing, it's to make sure this boy is raised right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting. And everything about this, again, Butler is a great writer, is set in Maryland. We don't think of Maryland necessarily as a slave state because it doesn't join the Confederacy. And we think of like, oh, Washington, D.C. is wedged between Virginia and Maryland. And Virginia was a slave state. No, Maryland was also a slave state. Right. You know, like, please. Home home to Frederick Douglass, like we talked about before. So, mm-hmm. right. And so, and it's 1815. It's a time of big change in our na- nation where we're becoming more nationalistic. We've lost the War of 1812, but that's called us together as a people. And, like, it's almost exactly, right, 150 years, or... Two, yeah, 150 years before this book is set, uh, we're going to end up at 1776. Yeah. Uh, it's great. And it's, um, what was I going to say? It's also similar to, um, I lost my train of thought. So, next question. Uh, so she ends up at Alice's house, um, where we see Allison, Alice's husband, right? No, uh, the, Alice's mother's husband, her dad, I forget the name. Ba, 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 ba. I don't think we're giving her name. It's Alice Greenwood. It's the one she's related to. Right. Uh, there's a, a Alice's group. husband is Isaac, I think. Yeah, Isaac. Isaac is being drugged away by a group of white men because he's a slave. She and her daughter are free. Um, and the white men are effectively saying, you know, you don't have a pass to be here. Uh, so he's being tracked down. Um, oh, I know what I want to say. Oh, please. <laughs> Sorry, my brain is slow. Um, but what Butler's doing here, to the point of Frederick Douglass, is she's creating a new slave narrative, right? And so it's it's a slave narrative, but told from the point of view or the time period of 1776 or 1976 to 1979 right. when she's writing this. So she's she's playing on the genre of slave narratives. Um, and then um, Maryland is an interesting choice. Maybe she had Frederick Douglass in mind. I, I don't know. She may have. I mean, I haven't read anything about that, but it's possible. And I mean, there's that show now uh, starring Henry Louis Gates, where they take famous people through their, you know, genealogy. Right. Yeah. Um, roots. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, but like, that started in the 70s, right? Like 60s and 70s, in kind of a in a black power kind of way. Like, let's talk about the fact that we came from slaves, and let's look into these slave power. Alex Haley, right there. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, yeah. 
Roots was right around. This. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my brain just stopped too. Okay, this is going to require so much. <laughs> it's contagious. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, shout out to LeBarber. Anyway, um, so with that in mind, uh, it's it's just interesting to see. Like, and I don't know if this is her family history, kind of lightly coded, or someone else she heard about, or she just manufactured one. But again, it fits in the '70s, where I bet you this was not an uncommon prospect. Sure, and, and coming as a historian, coming out of the late. Uh, 60s and the, the Back to Africa movement mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and Nation of Islam and all that sort of reclaiming the heritage, reclaiming the identity. Yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, this is when Zinn is coming out uh, as you know an incredible public speaker, and we're going to get to people's history in the mid 80s, which is going to become the underground success in the early 90s, and you know, like this whole uh, kind of narrative is coming around. Um, and I guess in 84 was when Jesse Jackson first ran for president. You know, like, we were even talking about reparations at this point in history. Uh, and sadly, we still are dealing with these same issues. So. <laughs> Welcome to America. Mm-hmm. Um, so how much of the plot do we want to get through? Or let's, let me ask you. So I picked this book because I thought you would enjoy it. Um, just it's well written, but also has those historical elements. So what was your experience reading it, Nick? Well, it's interesting because the the author does a good job of slowly revealing what's happening, um, but she doesn't make Dana dumb or preternaturally smart, right? She figures things out as they come in a logical way. She she realizes in that way that, I mean, I guess you and I do as teachers, that like, oh, this is just the same kid who's grown up over five years, and you recognize, and so she's like, okay, so I'm drawn to this kid. I don't know why. Uh, why did they say the name Alice? I'm related to an Alice, right? Like, it, it's very interesting. And so, essentially, it's either here or the next time she goes back, she realizes that she's going to go back whenever the kid is in trouble, a uh, life-or-death situation. Right. She goes back to the present when her life is threatened. Correct. The next time she goes back, she happens to, her husband essentially tries to, like, she starts to fade, and so he grabs onto her to help stabilize her, and they both go back together. Right. Um... You're gonna. We find out that the family is incredibly dysfunctional. Uh, obviously, it's a fairly large plantation. <clears throat> you have the abusive drunk of a father. You have the matriarch, who is the stepmom, who is very fancy. I don't know how to put it. Like she, she wants to be one of these society ladies, but refuses to do anything about it. So she just takes it out by being me- incredibly cruel to everyone. Right, which plays into my, you, and you know this too, just the the corruptive nature of slavery, right? Yeah. The power dynamic, how that that corrupts right. even the most well intentioned people. So it seems like she sort of means well, but then just in order to uh, retain her status in the plantation, she ends up being cruel and abusive. Well, like, there's an example. It happens later when she gets a little bit more infirm, but she wants to uh, teach Dana how to sew so she can, like, have good things. But, like, the way she does so is, like, so cruelly, even though she thinks she's helping people out. Like, it's it's that. Yeah. Um, and, and again, for example, Dana accidentally reveals herself to be useful because she can read and write in a time when even most of the adults that are white can't read. Right, which would have been a crime yeah. uh, for her as a black woman to do that. Um, exactly. Yeah, so the way that, that uh, Butler structures this, so Dana, as she comes back to 1815, the 18-teens, the plantation life, is a free black, and how she's navigating that living among the enslaved people and, and how that goes. 
Um, I don't know how common it was in that time period, but you know, Maryland was a border state, at least when we get to the war. Yeah. Um, so there, there were free blacks, but there were. was always a delicate dance because of things like the Fugitive Slave Act or just being sold down the river, literally. Well, and I think something that this does very well, um, and something that, I mean, whether or not I can teach it is up for grabs. Whether or not kids understand it is another question. Um, but the rigid hierarchy and societal structures, because even in the North, where blacks were free, that doesn't mean they were equal. And, and right, like, and that's something that they get to here. Like, for sure, yeah. Uh, Kevin essentially says he is a writer, uh, essentially doing you know like a rambler type book where he's going to talk about the South as he walks through it. And he purchased his wife uh, in this kind of farce as a way to help him write, as, as a secretary, as a co-writer. Um, and like, you know, the, at, at front, what's the name, Wynett? Wayland. Wayland, excuse yeah. me. W-E-Y-L-I-N. Yeah. Right, Wayland. Which is, again, makes me wonder if this is not a person that she knows. It's such a specific spelling. True, right. Um, but he's like, well, you don't want a slave that can read and write because that means they think they're smarter than you or whatever. Um, even though he secretly wants to buy her to help, uh, train his family and educate his son. Yeah. And another interesting thing as the story goes on, and you mentioned this before, that Dana realizes her ability because she's traveling back and forth, um, her ability to influence Rufus, like he seems like a sweet boy, um, but he's in the system and the N-word and how he treats her just by definition, because that's he's, what he's observed, how you treat black people. Um, and so he seems to have good intentions, um, but, you know, he has this attraction to Alice, um, one of his enslaved, and he's just this sense of entitlement there. Yeah. Uh, and imposing his will or imposing his lust on her, and she clearly doesn't want that. There's that heartbreaking scene where um, Alice, who is Dana's ancestor, is torn apart from Isaac, her husband, and he's literally sold down the river. Right. And so you see that family torn apart there. Um, and compared later where um, Kevin... Uh, Dana's husband comes back, and so she gets to be reunited with her husband, whereas Alice is deprived of that, yeah. the tearing apart family. So, there's a lot of names in this. Sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. I'm no, no, I'm, I'm even worse. I, I lost parts of it completely, the thread completely. Um, but no, it's true. And what, what's interesting too about this is it's all layered there because there's the family dynamic of those two who have a very modern relationship where they see each other as equal. There's the just uh, the Wylands who don't. Uh, this is clearly a second wife. He, like the, she provided a son, so she's more attached to the son than the husband because the husband seems like an old alcoholic who doesn't really True. care about anything. Right. Um, but the second that uh, Dana can give her son something that she can't, uh, which is the ability to read, uh, she becomes incredibly jealous. Um, you know, and again, they're reading old classics, Robinson Crusoe, and that kind of thing. Um, but like that dynamic is just so interesting. Like the whole time she's afraid she's going to lose her son, which she does by the, the next time they come back and he tells her off for interrupting Dana's reading. Yeah. Uh, again, the, just the dynamics of this are so interesting. And then she immediately, then she, when she goes to the slaves, there's another dynamic there because there's the, you know, the brusque old lady who runs the kitchen that eventually Dana learns how to cook from her, but she's clearly not in charge of the scene. This woman who's the cook is, 
Um, and we, we see the structure there. It's, it's, it's very rigid. Right. And, and navigating those different power dynamics between uh, her relationship with the white, because she speaks like a modern woman from 17 or 1976. Um, she's, everyone keeps talking about how are you speaking white? Why are you speaking white? Um, and just the, the, the power implicit in the way one carries themselves or or speaks or articulates. And so, yeah, there's a lot of little things that. Butler gets right, but you could tease out if you're teaching this. For a 43-year-old book, it's funny again. How are we still talking yeah, about this? Because yeah. again, like... A, funny, sad, yeah. Kindry and Takote, uh, Coates uh, was talking about, like, you know, um, the problem with, like, how to punish African-American children, because if education is acting white, what does that mean? Well, it's right here, you know. Uh, she, uh, the other kind of running gag, which she, she even gets sick of very early on, is that since she's wearing pants, she's dressed like a man. Right. Right. Um, and she, you know, has kind of a modern haircut where her hair is back and relatively short. And people just don't recognize her as being feminine in that way. And it's just, you know, and so she has to navigate. And so for me, part of it, too, is a look how far we've come story. Okay. Right? Sure. Um, which is great. But, you know, there's also that debate of have we come far enough? No, it's a process. Everything's a process. And I think this book is never preachy, but it gets there. Sure. And it, it, it explores the dynamics of just tribalism, right? No. Who you are, who I am, based on what you look like, how you speak. Um, you're with me, you're against me, particularly in something so divisive as a you know race-based slavery. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot just sociologically I think you could, you could consider here, too. Well, and even the dynamics of the slaves. Right, like she doesn't fit in particularly well with them either, um, until later on, in like the fourth or fifth time she goes back, where her and Alice form up kind of a team because Rufus cares for both of them, and then they're in charge in a way that make the other people jealous, right? Like, and th- there's that as well. Sure. Um, because in some ways, it's, she wins because she learned how to play the game. Uh, but you realize it's just not a game she wants to win. No, and and from a narrative structural um, perspective, it's a smart choice as a narrator because she never really fits in any place. Um, so you get that sort of, but she navigates all these different worlds because she has that that freedom. Right. Um, you know, I'm thinking like a Nick Carraway or something. He's not quite in the world, but he's of it, and so you you can have a sort of distance um, look at it. But though Dana is very much in it in in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and uh, we're jumping around here because we want you to read it, and uh, the narrative flows so smoothly you almost forget that these are events that happen in time. Um, but the, the 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 big turn, at least for me, when I was reading it, where I really felt like it, the book hit a groove is when Kevin went back with her. Okay. Because, you know, they're together, and they can get more intimate in the family because she belongs in the house with him because she's his slave. Right. Um, and he starts to fit in. In fact... Ironically, for what we've all just talked about with her kind of finding her groove and getting a part of the society, she's almost disgusted with how easily he fits into this society, right? Yeah, solely based on being a white male, right? A white male who can then kind of fake the funk of, okay, you have to do this because I say so. Um, And, you know, he does it for her sake. She understands that. There's no, like, maybe he's actually a racist. No, they're playing it right. But it's just interesting, that dynamic, because what it's saying is for a white male, things have not changed that much in some ways. Um, Meanwhile, for her as a minority woman, 
she's immediately almost sent away to the slave quarters. He's like, no, 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 she's my servant. She needs to be in the house. Right. Um, and so she ends up on, like, the floor of the attic and then eventually staying with him in his room. Yeah, and there's that, that implied, you know, the sexual dynamics of that, too. Just like, oh, as a white male, he can take his pick or that, that oh, you do it in this way when you want to have your slave mistress sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, it, it's subtle, but it's definitely there, and they're, they're navigating that. Yeah. Um, which I thought was a nice touch historically because we know that happened as well. Well, and, and again, like, even the dynamics within that are funny because at first, uh, Wyland lets Kevin stay there and all that stuff because he's literate and can help raise his son. The second that changes, and it's the black woman, like, it, 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 the dynamic doesn't really change, but everyone's uncomfortable with the black woman in that way, right? And that's that's so fucking... Like, I don't care who teaches my kid math. <laughs> Asian man, black woman... Like, it doesn't matter to me, but it's so funny how they play it off there. Sure. Very well. Right, because that was a, the cornerstone of identity and hierarchy. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so, yeah, I don't know if we want to continue to go through plot or... Um, where else do we want to go? Um, the only thing that we really, I guess... The, the, the other thing I think we should kind of mention just while we're here and we're going back around is the one that you already talked about, which is the fight. Uh, the, chap the section is called The Fight. Um, but that's where now Rufus is older. He's, um, his father has a heart attack. Um, and so, like, slaves are being traded and sold, yada, yada, yada. And he's claiming that it's just to pay off his father's debt. And these were things that were already dealt with before his father died. But then, as you mentioned, Isaac gets sold as a spite against Alice, right? Because he wants her to himself. He wants her for himself. But then we start to play into Dana's own background. And this is where we start to get the fact that when they first started dating, we get the story of them working in a factory while he was writing and she was writing. His book gets published. Hers does not. Mm -hmm. Though she has some stories. And so there's a friendly competition there. But as they start to become more and more of a couple and more and more intimate, they start to talk about their families, Right. And her family, she was raised by her aunt and uncle, and they don't want her to marry a white man, especially the uncle, because that's like marrying the enemy, right? He also is raised by family, not his parents, and his sister refuses to even meet Dana. And so there's this moment where there's still a juxtaposition here, where on one hand there's a racial dynamic of the black man and the black woman who raised this kid are uncomfortable with her marrying a white person. Mm-hmm. His family is uncomfortable, but in the past, a husband was literally sold away. Right. It's a fantastic dynamic. Yeah, that's a great point. Right. Yeah. Um, and I definitely missed that on my first read through, because I think I was just mainly reading for plot, and it, it's a good story, and it flows that way. Um, so, yeah, I think the novel, as is a theme of this podcast, holds up to multiple readings and... and yeah. Long story short, it's very teachable in that way, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then, uh, essentially, um, she keeps coming back to Rufus as he's getting beaten. At one point, she goes back without her husband, Kevin, um, and, you know, they, they reunite just in time to go back. At one point, she tries to kill herself because she realizes she only goes back in time when she's being threatened. Right. Um, and she does so rashly, like, because, again, like, she's desperate. Um, but this immediately throws suspicion on him, on Kevin, as though he's abusing her. Right. Um, because her actions have different consequences in different times. 
if she was a slave and killed herself, that's a problem, because we see Alice eventually do that. But if she kills herself in the modern era, it's her husband's putting pressure. It's just it's interesting. They play with that a lot. Sure. And Rufus and Dana figure out in their world that Rufus has that power. Like when he is in threat of his life, she comes to rescue him. And so that inherent servility, is that the right word? Yeah, maybe. In that she is there to serve him, to foster, to nurture his life, literally, to keep him alive. And he figures that out. And he selfishly wants her around. Yeah. Because he likes her, genuinely likes her. I think there's a genuine affection between the two. But it's super complicated because of all these layers of hierarchy and racial power and time travel as well. Yeah. Time travel always gets in the way. Yeah. So what I'm going to say is we'll talk about the ending now. So if you don't want to hear the ending... Here's your spoiler alert. Give me five seconds. Step away. <laughs> so, uh, Dana kills the bastard. I love it. I love how when we you said step away, we both averted eye contact. Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, so, um, the final sequence, she goes back. Like I said, she takes matters into her own hands. At a time, there's a there are other slaves who she's afraid are going to kill him. Uh, and she's got the moral quandary. Am I going to stop them from doing this? I need him to be alive. Because she's rescued him so many times, including from Alice's husband right. after the rape scene. Uh, so when she finally kills him, I didn't think that was going to happen. I oh, really? I, I didn't know. Like, I, well, it's a building to a rape scene. So like, yeah. Alice is gone, and, and he wants to, like, oh, I love you so much, and you're just like her, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, yeah, you can see where it's going. Yeah, and, and I, will say, I will say, when I started reading that chapter, I had a feeling... But like it, halfway through, I'm like, I wonder what's going to happen. Like maybe he's going to convince, she's going to convince him to be good, to to, right. to free the slaves, right. um, to do anything, to be that nonsense uh, like um, Mel Gibson in The Patriot. They're all free. They just choose to work here. Um, <laughs> but like, no, she just kills him. I'm like, good. What a, what a, yeah. what a nice little neat ending. He deserves <laughs> it for sure. We'll go and, then, on and then there's an interesting story that they that she figures out. Um, Afterwards, when she goes back in modern times and then she goes to visit the plantation and looking for stories and like what's going to happen yeah. because here's now is a white man dead. Um, but it turns out there was a fire uh, on the plantation and that seems like one of the other uh, slaves set the, set the house on fire in order to cover that up. Right. And yeah. fire is, like you mentioned before, a common theme throughout this, like the, the cleansing power of fire. Purgative, right. Exactly. Yeah. Destructive and, and renewing. Um, although she feels extreme guilt in that the slaves, after Rufus died, would have been sold off. And so she didn't free them, essentially. Right. But she did allow her existence to, to happen. Um, yeah. And again, like it's 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 such a that you know it's it's a fantasy in that way, and it's it's but it's just what 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 are we gonna do? Like yeah. you can't undo the past. Yeah, it's great. I I I'm very satisfied by that ending. I can't wait to see it. I want. I really again. I have my own movie in my head, but I want to see what they do with the with the with the series. How long they stretch it out, or what the what they do with it. Yeah, I mean, because it's. It's what four hundred pages, three fifty. Like it's a nice, tight little book. I don't think it's even that. No, you're right. It's it's two fifty. Yeah. Excuse me, about two fifty, two sixty. It 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 moves at a quick little clip. So I hope they don't string out too long, because that would take away the fun of it. Like the fact that it moves so quickly, the fact that she's panicked, and 
we should mention that, like, at the end, she's literally torn in half by this. Like, she's stuck in the wall and loses an arm. Like, it's it's violent scene. Right. But it, it's also a great metaphor. So literally, America is stuck. Part of our bodies uh, incorporated. Um, that, that's our, our memory or our trauma yeah. is, is losing that or recognizing that that loss. Yeah. So. They should put up a statue to the wall. Right. <laughs> well, I wonder, I mean, we just taught this yesterday in class, like Stonewall Jackson's arm being buried. Yeah, that's right. So this is a, a twist on that same idea. Yeah, yeah look it up, guys. I, I won't get into the story here, but after Stonewall got shot outside of Chancellorsville, uh, they amputated his arm and they buried it. <laughs> you can find, there's a monument to the man's arm and there's a monument to the man. Right. Uh, so there right. you go. Um, so I guess without even having to say anything, we're both recommending this book. Uh, we both think it fits in the curriculum. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to try to teach it this spring, or at least put it on the list for students as an option. Yeah, so uh, we might not talk about pedagogy here. Um, in the spring, uh, we try to do alternative literature. Um, and the problem is, I want to talk about the classics. I'd love to, but um, I think a kid is less likely to pick up a comic book if they've never picked up a comic book before than later pick up Slaughterhouse-Five, I, I would guess, just because that appears on every list possible. Sure. So we're trying to do alternative literature, and something like this, a sci-fi slash fantasy novel, if you're not a sci-fi fantasy person, you probably wouldn't pick up. Um, so I think that would belong there nicely. Yeah, I think this is, um, yeah, like you said, a sleeper, an underground, but I'm sure it's going to um, be more in our consciousness when the film comes out. Maybe in 20 years we'll be talking about it the way we talked about uh, Gatsby, where people didn't care at first, and now it's catching on. It's found its audience, right? Yeah, it's good. And, and the reading level's right there. Uh, it's smooth. I, 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 I plowed through it pretty quick. Yeah, the reading level's interesting, because I looked up in the card catalog, and it's classified as um, young adult, which I thought, really? Um, I wouldn't do it. And it's a little more sophisticated than that. Not and that, That's no slight at young adult. There's some brilliant young adult literature, yeah. but... Um, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting classification for that. Well, I think part of it, too, is that they didn't think about things in those terms back in the 70s, right, in the same way. No, definitely not. So, like, I think this was just a book she wrote, and now they're like, well, what's the Lexile level? And I'm like, who cares, man? Like, I read The Hobbit for last season, and I enjoyed it just fine, even if it is written for kids, right? So... Um, a good story is a good story. A good story is a good story. Well yeah. said. And, and this is one. So, yeah, definitely recommend this one. I mean, when your pull quote on the front covers from Harlan Ellison, who's you to argue? Who are you to argue? Yeah, you're in good company. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, what are you reading? Um, it's funny. Related to the <laughs> idea of bodily trauma, I'm, I'm on one of those weird synchronicities. I'm reading The Extended Mind. Yeah. It's The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain by Annie Murphy-Paul. I heard a podcast about it. Uh, essentially, she's talking about, I'm only about a quarter of the way through, but how our bodies and our experience are a form of intelligence outside of just like sitting down and writing. And so talking about moving, talking about how um, we store intelligence literally in our bodies. We're meant to move and sort of biological um, and behavioral psychology or I don't It's interesting. So um, and. Yeah, I'm enjoying it so far, so that's what I'm reading. Yeah. Cool, so uh, Mike Burns is uh, recommending Dianetics by Elma. No! <laughs> no. Um, and so uh, right now the kids are reading 19th century topics, let's say. Uh, and so some books are written in the 19th century, like um, or early 20th, late 19th, early 20th. So some are reading like Call of the Wild, Little Women. Um, but we also assign some nonfiction and some books set in the time period. 
uh, one that I had read God, forever ago and watched the movie of and showed film class but had not read in a while was The Assassination of Jesse James by the character Robert Ford by Ron Henson. Uh, it is incredible. Um, and word on the street is the kids think it's one of the best books they've ever read. Right. Yeah, the, the boys I spoke to yesterday who chose that are, are absolutely loving it. That's good. Um, which, which is our goal, to get which them is to read. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's very prosy. Um, you will feel an understanding for Jesse James and Bob Ford in a way that I've never read in a book before. Um, and it's fictionalized, but historically accurate, as, correct. You, as you've said. Right. Correct. And I don't know how long it took Henson to do the research for this, uh, but it must have been years because he really gets into the nitty gritty. Even, I mean, spoiler, he assassinates Jesse James, Bob Ford does, but even to talk about his stage show at the end, which he runs for 700 some odd showings, like they describe it in incredible detail and you get the, you can almost hear the Ahsoka farewell playing in the background as, as the book is read. So yeah. uh, I would definitely read that. Yeah. And it's a great film. You do a great unit on that, on that assassination scene um, in the film. So I appreciate yeah. that. Um, and and uh, the film stars Sam Rockwell, Casey Affleck, and then Jesse James is played by Brad Pitt. It's, it's a great movie if you can get your hands on it. It's, it's, it's one of the, some of the most beautiful loving shots of the Great Plains you'll see in film. Yeah. Really tight editing and, and pacing for that, for that scene at least. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a little bit of a programming note. Um, in honor of the uh, release of The Tragedy of Macbeth by the Coen Brothers and the Academy Awards season, the next episode will probably be on Macbeth. Um, just to slot that in. Do we say that name? Are we allowed uh, to say that? Well, I'm not on stage right now. <laughs> it appears my laptop has just caught fire. Um, but we'll, we're going to talk about The Tragedy of Macbeth so we can do a little bit of a film tie-in because I assume people who remember it from high school and are shuddering are going to rather listen to a podcast than talk about it. Uh, but on Apple Plus, the Coen brothers starring Denzel Washington um, as, well, yeah, starting with Denzel Washington directed by Joel Coen. Francis McDormand plays Lady Macbeth. It looks like it's going to be incredible. Sure. Um, so I figured why not do a film tie-in. How often do you get to do a film tie-in with Shakespeare? Probably actually fairly often. Um, and then we'll come back with um, uh, Mike's pick for me, which is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, Reverse, your pick for me. Yeah, sorry, yeah. my pick for you um, on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, as suggested during our Christmas episodes um, on kids' books, I'll probably start dropping in between a teaser for the next episode by reading a chunk of the stories. Um, just so you guys, are, so you don't miss the sound of our voices. Oh. Uh, but we can kind of uh, fill the gaps by giving you a taste of the book, maybe wetting your appetite so you can read it before you hear us talk about it. Hello. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, because I guess it's the 20th anniversary for spoilers, we're going to be talking about Fellowship of the Ring, Robert Von Hagen again, um, because the second I mentioned Lord of the Rings, anywhere in the school, he perks up a little bit. <laughs> he suddenly shows up at the door, right? <laughs> Just holding a 9,000-page tome, tapping it on the glass. Uh, but yeah, uh, Robert's going to be back along with Mike Carroll again uh, because he also read the book for the first time and we're just going to overwhelm poor uh, Mike Burns. So Mike, <laughs> uh, thanks for showing up and I'm sorry about what we're about to do. <laughs> I'll be here. Just be fun to be in the room. Yeah. Uh, thanks, guys. Thank you.